Welcome to class. Please take a seat. This is James Renner, author of True Crime Addict and host of True Crime This Week podcast. In January 2023, I held a series of online sessions on the topic of true crime writing. Everything from picking the perfect case to uh, selling and marketing your book. I hope you enjoy On Writing True Crime. For more information or to contact me personally, visit jamesrenner.com. Um, so today, so uh, today is week three, um, and we're going to be talking about writing and editing your true crime story. Um, so uh, most of most most everybody here, um, y- what you're going to be writing is either your first article or your first complete book, and for that first article or book you will not be writing uh a and this is just my advice but um i would suggest that you don't write a book proposal you just write the entire manuscript you devote yourself to completing that entire manuscript because at this point you're um unproven and the you know uh, a proposal when you send it in there's that expectation that you can complete an entire manuscript and if you don't have that, it's kind of a catch-22, right? Like if you don't have that behind you, they they don't really believe that you could complete that. Um, so that's why a proposal could get you in more trouble than it's worth. So I'm suggesting you just write um, the the entire manuscript, and and that's 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 how I got started. Um, you you write it to completion um, so that you can prove that you can in fact do this. Uh, if you, if you come with, if, if you come to a publisher, an editor, or, uh, an agent and say, Hey, I want to write a story about this true crime. And you haven't been published before. The first thing that they're going to do is look is what they do for any debut author, which is to look at their, um, socials, uh, and see what kind of following they have, because even if they're unproven, if they have a million followers, uh, they know that, you know, if they sell 10% of that, that's still a wildly successful book, but none of us have that. Um, so, um, the only way, if you can come to them with a complete manuscript, they will read your work because they know that you've done a lot of the heavy lifting already, and this could be an easy sell for them. And, um, if it's a compelling story, it really doesn't matter who wrote it. If it's and that's the key is to develop that um, sixth sense of finding a compelling story. And and the best way to do that is just to find if there's a particular story that you become kind of obsessed with, then, you know, built, you know, already there is um, a story that will will get its hooks into people, people like you. So that's a good story to to dive into. Um, the big question is, when do you go from last week, we talked about interviews and research. So when do you move from interviews and research to active writing? And generally what I like to do is to wait until I'm about 75%, you know, where I have an idea where I'm about 75% complete of, um, the research involved, where I feel like I, I know 
most of this case, not all, but I can see what I still need to get and it's mostly there. Um, and at that point, it should feel like you're kind of lost in all the details and you don't really know where to begin or how to organize it. You, you have all these questions um, and that's actually a good place to be in. It's going to feel overwhelming because you can't really see the the forest for the you know the the trees or the trees for the forest and uh, um, that's but that's when you know that you've got enough there to uh, to build a book around and at, it's actually the writing process that's going to allow you to make sense of that greater story the greater mystery because it's going to force you to start organizing it into a narrative into a story that makes sense to a reader that knows nothing about this case before and while you do that you're going it's naturally going to um bring up questions that maybe you hadn't thought about because you're going to be kind of looking at it as you're writing through the lens of a potential reader and they're going to have questions and so it can actually help the rest you know that last 25% of your research um so i tip that's that's where i'm at you know sometime around 75% of the way through i start writing <clears throat> and um you know with the last couple books and i i think this is changing because i'm not doing it for the next next couple i don't think the first couple books, Amy and the, the Moore Murray book, um, for those first two books, I, I had started a blog. Uh, I had a blog on the Amy Mihalovic case. I had a blog on the Moore Murray case. And I was using that to generate, I, you know, every time I would do an interview, I posted on the blog. Anytime I would find some new bit of information, a, a public records request, I would put it out there. So it's kind of already sharing it with the public. And it worked as kind of like a... Um, uh, a focus group or, you know, readers of a first draft where they would come at me with questions that, you know, I'd realized, oh, there's a hole in my reporting. I need to figure out what the answer is for this thing. And I found that to be very helpful. Um, and, uh, you know, but that can also be problematic because um, you, you know, you, you open it, you have to be very careful about not being too sensational um, it opens, you can, you know, by having that blog out there, you can become a target for some crazy people too. Um, but, uh, with true crime addict, the book on the Maury Murray case, I, I, I did this. I, I waited until I was about 75% done with the research. I started writing and that puts you in a very interesting predicament because eventually your writing will catch up with where you are in the research and if you've seen that movie Spaceballs, there's a moment in the movie where they find a video cassette of Spaceballs, the movie and they plug it in and they watch it and they begin watching themselves watching the movie and it becomes very meta um and there's a moment in true crime addict where my <laughs> my writing and reporting catches up with where i'm at in real life and and i write it in and don't be afraid to, to to do that because it seems like that's what true crime publishers are liking at the moment. This um, writing yourself in as a character, you know, we 20 years ago, 
you know, you'd hear this saying in the newsroom of, of newspapers where, you know, readers don't want to know how the sausage is made. And for some reason, that's changed. And, and readers do want to know how the sausage is made. They want to know how the story is affecting the author, the writer, why they're writing about it, why he or she or they are writing about this particular story. And uh, it makes it much more personal. So um, the moment that I, there was a moment where I realized I had to start writing the Maura Murray book. And I had actually been researching this case. I started researching the case in 2011. And in 2013, I spent two, a little longer than I normally do. I spent about two years researching this case before I started writing the book. And the, um, the event that changed all that is um, when, when I was uh, um, arrested and, and put in jail for contempt of court. So let me back up a little bit and uh, and tell you the story. Um, my sister, uh, so I have I have four sisters. They're all younger. Um, I'm the oldest, and uh, the 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 second to to youngest is a my sister. Her name was uh, uh, is Barb, um, and she lived in uh, Lakewood, Ohio. And if you're from Northeast Ohio. Lakewood is kind of the place that everybody ends up after college. Um, it's kind of like the in-between place. It's a very small suburb, but it's very um, packed with residents. There's houses, you know, on top of each other, and there's just a lot of people living there, bars on every corner. And uh, my sister Barb was about 21, 22 years old in 2013, and uh, she's working as a server. She got this dog that was um trouble from the start and i told her um it was it looked like a pit bull but it technically wasn't a pit bull it was just a big mean looking dog it was the sweetest thing but if you were to pass it on the sidewalk you'd 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 be scared and uh one day she was walking that dog and along came a chihuahua and this giant dog went after it and it didn't didn't get it but it was close. And the woman who was walking this chihuahua uh, called the city and got the animal control people involved. And they sent out this young man, couldn't have been more than 22, 23 years old himself. And his job was to, well, he cited her with, um, you know, failure to control her, her dog. And she had to schedule this court date to go in front of the judge. Now, leading up to the court date, this animal control officer um, fell in love with my sister and started stalking her and showing up at the house uninvited. And every time he'd come up to the house, he'd talk his way into the little apartment and he was walking around um, and he'd walk through the apartment. He'd, and he, his excuse was, well, I just want to make sure everything's safe for both you and the dog. But in my mind, I'm thinking of um, Dennis Rader, right? Like the BTK killer who was an animal control officer and would use his job in order to case homes of potential victims. And uh, so uh, no, uh, so this all led to um, one day she, she went out of her apartment and she finds this guy in her backyard. And 
he gets all flustered and she's like, what are you doing here? And he said, oh, I was just, I was, uh, I was walking my dog. I live nearby. And I just, I figured while I was in the area, I'd, I'd just check up and make sure everything was okay. Now, she called me after that finally and told me what was going on. And I looked into it because he said he lived in the neighborhood and he did not. He lived two towns away. So now, now I know this is, this is a serious issue. So she has to go in front of the judge in, in a couple of days. And I went with her into Lakewood and Lakewood is, um, you know, they had this uh, judge who had been judged for like 30 years. He was pushing seventies um, and uh, he, Judge Carroll was his name and you get in trouble in Lakewood. You have to go in front of Judge Carroll. And uh, she I, I showed up for court and, you know, I kind of look like a lawyer. I don't mean to, but, you know, I was dressed nicely and I had my satchel, you know, like, like lawyers carry. And he called Barb up and the animal control officer who was stalking her was the witness. And he was already like sitting in the witness box. And so when Barb went up, I stood up and, uh, and uh, I said, judge, there's something about this case that's going on that you should know about. And he looked at me and he said, are you, are you her lawyer? And I said, no, 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 I'm her older brother. Um, but there's, this case is a little weird and you should know what's going on here. And he said, well, if you're not her lawyer, I don't want you to say another word. And I said, I understand how all this works. I said, you know, I'm a, I'm a reporter. I've covered courts before. Uh, you know, there's just, you know, I got to tell you what's, what's going on here because it has something to do with, with the case. And he, he started getting really mad. He's like, if, if he's like, you cannot say anything. You're not her lawyer. Um, and we went back and forth a couple of times. And finally, he said, look, if you say one more word, I'm going to find you in contempt. And so um, uh, I had, you know, 2013, I had some substance abuse problems um, and anger issues. And so I went through my Rolodex of... Um, Cleveland history, because working as a reporter in Cleveland for about 10 years, you kind of get to know everybody's secrets, especially, you know, elected officials. And so, you know, I, what I, when he said, if you say one more word, I'm going to find you in contempt. What I said was judge, you're nothing but a drunk. And I turned my back on him and walked out the door. Now um, I got two feet into the hallway and I feel somebody grab me from behind. And I think it's the animal protection guy, right? And so I grab his arm and I, I don't know where the strength came from because I, you know, I don't work out. And I grab his arm and I, I toss him over my shoulder and he lands on the floor. And that's when I realize it's, it's, the, uh, it's the court police officer. And uh, he jumps up and pulls out his taser. And I just, I put my arms up. And... We're in this hallway, and there's one other person in the hallway, and it's this uh, woman who showed up to pay a parking ticket. And I look to her as he's handcuffing me, and and I say, "I'm gonna." Need, I said, "Can I have your name? Because I'm gonna need I'm gonna need you as a witness to to what happened here." And she just sat there and shook her head. And so um, I was arrested. I got contempt of court for saying that to the judge and it was normally with contempt of court they put you in jail for a couple hours he sentenced me to 10 days um and uh i ended up getting charged with a felonious assault on a police officer which carries a possible prison sentence of eight years 
And so I was in a lot of trouble um, and uh, I had some time to think about it in, in jail while I was stewing. And they let me out after five days. And when I got out, now I had to track down that woman that was, I, first of all, I, I, I had to get a lawyer, right? And uh, the first thing I told him, I, I'm like, there's video, there's got to be video from that hallway that shows him jumping me before I, I knew who he was. And I, I was acting in self-defense because I had no idea. I thought I was being attacked. If I knew it was a police officer, I never would have done that. So we go to the Lakewood Police Department and they're like, you know, funniest thing, you know, our camera in that hallway just, it wasn't recording. And uh, we said, well, what about the witness that was in the hallway? And they're like, well, how would we even know how to find her? So um, what I did, and this is another one of those thinking outside the box things in, you know, out of necessity, was I went to the Lakewood docket and, and I looked at everybody that was at court that day. And it's a list of like 150 people. And then I went to Facebook and, and, uh, and checked all those names against Facebook profiles. And that's how I found the woman. And we sent a private investigator over to get her statement. She said, yes, absolutely. I saw the whole thing. You know, this cop jumped him out of nowhere. Um, and it looked to me like he was defending himself. So once we had that, they dropped that felony charge, thank God. And I just got stuck with the contempt of court for being an, a jerk. Um, but which is a weird story, but a long way of saying um, it, it, it was that moment in my life where I realized I had to kind of change everything that I was doing. And one of the, one of the things I had to change was I had to stop researching this case that um, was going nowhere, the Moore Murray case. I could keep researching it, keep finding new clues forever, but it was never going to, it was never going to really end. Um, so um, also, you know, when you're, when you're charged with, with things like that, it becomes a necessity to um, try to find a little money to cover court costs and things like that. So it was time to st stop uh, researching and, and start writing something that could be published. And, um, and that's when I really started writing True Crime Addict. And I put that whole scene in the book, you know, where, where my research catches up with my writing is that scene. And um, it worked very well in talking about, um, you know, how I let myself get so absorbed with, with this mystery and kind of lost in, in what I was doing. So, um, don't be afraid to get personal and, you know, you need to understand when the research needs to stop, even if you're not going to find an answer, even if you're not going to solve the case, you need to produce something to, to, um, so that all your work up to that point isn't, isn't for nothing. Uh, so let's talk about routine as a writer. You need, you need to have a routine. You can't just, you know, write whenever you, find a spare moment, you know, in your, in your week and hope that, hope that you can make it work like that. You have to make progress every day. You have to write every day. And that means for me, it's, it's 365 days a year. Um, and it, it, you, you should, you should want that. Um, it should feel kind of like a compulsion, even if, and, and that, that means like, no matter how small, some days, 
if if you can just write a couple paragraphs, at least at least you've produced something. Um, you're you should be committing to this like uh, like an addiction, like a religion, um, and you should be thinking about story as you fall asleep. I've always found that a very nice way to fall asleep. Um, I had trouble falling asleep as a kid, and and what I would do is I would tell myself elaborate stories at night um, and drift off to sleep that way. And I would think up these, these novel ideas. And so um, get in, and that becomes a habit, you know, so make that habit for yourself. Uh, and as you're falling asleep, start to think about how you might be structuring your story or how you could tell a particular part of that story. Um, so, uh, so, you're making progress every day. And sometimes it, it, it'll feel like a push and you don't want to write. You don't have any creative energy in you to write anything good. On those days, what I like to do is just enter data. Um, and for instance, with some of these, with true crime, you're going to have police reports that detail specific interviews or facts of the case or how the police discovered the body at least at the very least you can do that so on those days where you don't have those creative juices enter in that data because you know you're going to use it somewhere so write out that police report and you know um, bit by bit you know from the report itself into your own words so at least you're getting something on paper um, yeah, don't worry about the quality at this point. You're not worried about, don't get hung up on, oh, that sentence doesn't feel right. It doesn't sound right. Don't worry about any of that. Don't even think about it. Get it on paper. We'll come back to it later. Uh, you need to figure out if you're a morning writer or a nighttime writer. Uh, at the beginning, um, when I, when I started writing these books, I, I very much was a morning writer. Uh, I had a couple young kids and I would send them off to school and I would send my youngest to preschool and she was in preschool for th about three hours. Three hours every day. And um, that would allow me that window because, uh, you know, I don't feel like you have to devote eight hours a day to this thing you know try to try to find two hours every day or an hour and a half an hour and a half to two hours and uh, that'll give you enough time to get into that that frame of mind that that routine um it'll take you about 15 minutes you know they you know, they, they say this in grade school right you know the teachers if, if you know any teachers they'll tell you you know, it, it'll take 15 minutes to get the kids in the zone where they're ready to learn and ready to hear me. And same thing with with writing. It, it'll take you about 15 minutes before you get into that flow. And you'll know that you're there because um, time will fly by and you'll lose track of time. And, you know, two hours will feel like five minutes. Um, and uh Yes, this unsolved uh, VA, uh, you know, it takes about two weeks to become a habit. That's probably true. I had a I had a band director in middle school who said, you know, to create a habit, you have to just do the same thing 21 times. Um, and, uh, you know, so I'd say that's about right. Um, again, we're dealing, we're, we're not worrying about quality at this point. We're dealing in quantity. And 
it should feel like what you're putting on the page is a lump of clay and it doesn't have to look pretty. Um, it doesn't even have to look like a form yet because you know in, in the editing process, editing is where the art is. Editing is where you're gonna turn that lump of clay into, um, into a beautiful sculpture of, of some sort. Um, so what you're doing is just getting the words on the page. You're getting approximately uh, where you want to be. Um, and this time, you know, we're at, at this point, we're all adults and we're already in a routine with with kids and spouses and jobs. Uh, so carving out two hours a day or 90 minutes a day, you're going to have to sacrifice something. And that could be um, time with your spouse at the end of the day. Uh, it could be the time you spend exercising. Um, it could be the time you spend just vegging um, in the mornings. Um, but there will be some sort of sacrifice and it'll suck for a little bit, but then you'll get to like, you know, just like people that get really into exercising every day, you, you start to enjoy the, I won't call it pain, but you, you, the discomfort a little bit. And um, so you, you're, you're carving out that 90 minutes to two hours, and then you're going to do anything that your physical body desires in order to um, get the creative juices flowing so that you know tea you know pamper yourself right like get your tea get your coffee get your snack get your music playing whatever your fuel is um, you know because uh, what's going to happen is you're going to find that even if even though you're just sitting down and you're organizing this research into a story, into a chapter, into an article, um, it will be, it, it's going to feel exhausting, which is weird because you, know, you might feel a little guilty about that because like, what did I do? I just sat at a computer and typed, but I think it's probably you're, you're using your brain in a way that, that most people don't get to do. And uh, um, you are, even though you're not moving, you're spending a lot of energy. Um, what, what I did is uh, when I got really serious about writing books, um, I went to my wife, I went to Julie and I, and I said, uh, you know, because I couldn't, I was trying to figure out, I was just trying to write whenever I had empty time. And as a, as a husband, as a father, you know, somebody with a job, you're already filling that time with, you know, working on, you know, uh, fixing a light switch or giving a kid a bath or, or something that that time will be filled. So um, where do you find that? And finally I went to her and I said, I think I can finish this book, but I need, I need the mornings. I need until, I need until lunchtime. And then I will be your beck and call. I will do anything you know you need me to do around the house. I'll get the kids off in the morning, but I need from the time I drop the kids off until lunch to write and to research, or I'm, or this is not going to happen. And uh, and and she was very supportive of that. She's you know it's okay, and that became the routine for years. And and that was the the time I I I, I carved away. So figure out what your routine is going to be. Is it going to be morning? Is it going to be evening? 
and, um, and, and, and figure out, you know, have that conversation with your significant other, you know, somebody that needs to cover for you. Um, let's talk about content of your writing. Uh, here are the basics. Your manuscript or article um, needs to be in this format. Microsoft Word, 12 point times New Roman, double spaced with your first line indented. And you're not giving yourself space in the extra space in between the paragraphs. Um, this is something in the last 10 years with, with social media and Facebook posts and things like that. We like to like write in blocks. We'll write a paragraph and then space and then another block paragraph and then space. This is this is old school writing. No space, no big spaces in between paragraphs. Um, it's gonna look like prose. You're gonna indent your first lines. And and if it's not Microsoft Word, 12 point times new room Roman double-spaced with first line indented, you're going to send it to an agent and they're going to throw it in the bin. If it doesn't meet the, the basic minimum requirements for formatting, they're, they're going to realize you're not serious. And, and uh, yeah, it is a little like APA format, um, unsolved VA. So um, that's the basics. Uh, so you're also going to... Um, when you're writing, the writing that, that that's interesting, I'm trying to think of true crime books that don't do what I'm about to tell you, and I can't think of any. Uh, it's what separates true crime books and articles, long-form articles, from just simple newspaper articles. And that's when you take the people that appear in the story, the victims, the families of the victims, the police, the, the suspects, and you give them three dimensions. Instead of when you read a newspaper article, you're just getting, here's the person that was killed, here's the person that did it. And most of the time, you're not getting any sort of background on these people. It's just the facts, here's what happened. Um, to make it interesting, to make it a, a, a book that people wanna read, you have to take these real people and make them into characters that, um, that you know, and I say characters, but they are real people, but you have to show us their three dimensions, you know, what makes them unique. And, uh, and that's, that's where I think a lot of the fun comes in with what we're doing here. Um, and there's, there's two types of people that, that I've come across. There's the people that are already interesting and you don't have to do much work. Um, and then there are the people that appear, um, you know, just on the surface, it's hard to read them. But then in those cases, you have to dig deeper to find out what makes them unique and, and what their hopes and, you know, fears and dreams and, and all that are. Um, the, the first one, uh, one, of the, one of the first stories I wrote for Scene was this article um, about a very interesting guy. And the article just wrote itself. It was this I, I I think I had heard about him from a friend of a friend. This guy named Mike Charlton, who was an ex-con living in East Cleveland. And he had robbed a convenience store and served a four to 10 year stretch at a prison uh, around here, maybe Trumbull. 
and um, went to prison for many years. And he came out and um, nothing was working as far as like getting him on the straight and narrow. He couldn't figure out how to be a decent you know, human being. And so he realized what he needed was a hobby and something to take all of his time and effort and something that made him unique. So what he did was he started to build a jet uh, semi in his garage. He turned a semi truck into um, a jet. He 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 managed to, you know. So you got to think about all the logistics behind that. How in the world do you find a jet engine? How do you purchase it as a citizen, especially as a as a as a convict? Um, how do you then hook it up to the semi to make it um, go really fast. And um, and so the process of all that took so much energy that he was able to stay out of trouble because that was that was all he could do for for years was slowly chip away at the stream that he had. And so that made him a very interesting character. Um, just as an aside, uh, I for that story, um, I showed up at one of his events at this drag strip on the east side of Cuyahoga County and just hoping to report on this. And when I showed up, he said, okay, hop in. And uh, I ended up riding in the passenger seat in this jet semi um, that he was still kind of fiddling with. And right before we took off, uh, and this, 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 semi would get from zero to like 200 miles an hour in under like six seconds or something like that and uh before we took off he he looked at me and he said now in he's like in order to stop before the end of the track we have to use a parachute he said but i'm not entirely sure i've figured it out yet and then he hits the engine and we and the whole thing starts shaking when we take off and uh, we get to the the end, near the end, and I see him reach down and there's this like, it looks like a, an emergency brake in a car, but it's what releases the parachute. And he grabbed it and he pulled and he looks back and he says, oh, fuck, fuck, fuck. And uh, the parachute didn't go off. And I'm thinking we're going, we're going, we're going, we're going to die. And uh, he was pumping the brakes and the track actually turns at the end. Um, and, uh, you're supposed to stop by then, but he was able to turn and, and the, the, you know, the forces of the turn slowed us down a little bit and we didn't go off the track, but it was very, very close and very scary. Um, but, uh, but yeah, he, he made for a very interesting character without me having to do anything. Now there, there are some cases where you have to do a little digging, um, and the, uh, example I can think of for this is um, is uh, Amy Mihalovic. Uh, before I wrote a, a book about her in 2005, all we really knew about her as as a person was that was her death, and um, we didn't know much about what she was like as a living ten year old girl. So. Uh, I interviewed a lot of her friends, I tracked down her friends and family, and I was able to paint a more three-dimensional picture of this girl. Uh, and, you know, the fact that she loved 
cuddling on the couch with her friend Christy after school and watching reruns of the monkeys um, that she liked to make um, these things called baloney boats in her oven. You know, the, her mother would um, put bologna on a cookie sheet and then put cheese on top of it and you put it in the oven and it, the heat causes it to roll into like taco shaped little, you know, little um, bologna rolls. Um, and that she was fighting with her mom at the time of her disappearance that, you know, she was, um, you know, she developed all these emotions and, you know, shortly before she was abducted and, and uh, it was, you know, she was butting heads. And, uh, oh, and the most important thing um, that I, I found that, that really uh, ironically says a lot about her is we know Amy from that missing poster, right? Like if, if you know the case, you've seen the poster of her with that side saddle ponytail, that 80s ponytail and her school picture. And that's become iconic. Like if you think of Amy, if you know the case, you know that picture. Well, the funny thing is that was the only day she wore her hair like that. Um, talking to friends and family, I learned that she, she wore her hair down. She hated that school picture. She would have hated to know that the ta that's how we all see her. Um, and because on the day that she got her school picture taken, she's like, she, she, you know, and I can see my daughter who's now 10 doing the same thing where she overthinks it. And she, she's like, I want to try something new. If it's a picture, I got to look a little different. I want to try something new. And she tried this ponytail and then she hated it. And um, so kind of ironic that that became how everybody sees her because it's not how she saw herself. Um, so remember when you're writing about these people, um, what separates you from the daily newspaper reporter is you get to go deeper. You get to tell us what they're really about. You get to write them like a character. Um, and it's important to remember everybody has a story. Everybody should be three-dimensional. And don't be afraid to talk about their faults there too. It, um, you know, I, again, I think about the Maura Murray case. You know, we all know our faults. I was very upfront about, you know, getting thrown in jail for contempt of court and acting stupid in a courtroom, uh, which I would never do again, but we all make mistakes. Maura Murray made a lot of them. She committed credit card fraud. She got kicked out of uh, West Point, um, but it makes her a more understandable human, certainly much more than the all-American, you know, perfect to a fault girl that we had before, uh, before that story. Um, here's another little trick. Um, and Something that I just recently learned, um, and I was doing this automatically, and I didn't understand why it was working, but now I now I do, and um, other writers do this, so it's not like a, a thing that I invented or anything. Um, but um, so here's the key: you got to let the reader discover information with you, um, because it's what's going to put your story in their head and it's going to get stuck there forever and they're going to talk about your book and they're going to come back to it. Um, let me explain a little better. So there was this study that was um, not a study. Um, it's something that is practiced in um, the army and the, and the CIA. They use this in what's called uh, psyops. So they're the, you know, it's psychological operations. And they use this when they're 
um, in enemy territory and they want to put um, something out in the media. They want to they want to get something out there to get a certain response from the enemy in the media. It's propaganda. It's stuff like that. Um, but what they discovered, the people that were working in psyops in the military, what they discovered is if you have a piece of information and you and you write it in such a way that the reader discovers the information you want them to discover, instead of you telling them the information, it will have a dramatic impact on them. It will, you know, you can use it for propaganda, you can use it to radicalize them. It will have an immediate impact. Um, so um, think about the novels, think about stories from like Sherlock Holmes or Agatha Christie, these mystery fiction mystery thrillers where you're in a closed setting or like the Knives Out movies where you're in a closed setting, you have the suspects around you and you get the story from everybody. And um, just like the detective, the reader is presented with all the clues necessary to solve the case. Now in Knives Out, um, uh, Benoit Blanc, I think his name is, um, Blanc is the only one that's smart enough to take all those clues and suspects and time frames and details and put them into a narrative that fits and, and therefore he figures out who the killer is. Well, the reader, if the reader's smart enough, they got all, they have all these clues too, and they can figure out the puzzle and figure out the one way in which everything makes sense and come to the conclusion, hopefully a moment before Blanc in the movie figures it out. Because if you make the reader feel smart, if, if the reader goes, oh my God, I figured it out, they're going to feel that and they're going to take that with them and it's going to remind them of that story forever. Um, so you should do the same thing on these um, true crime books, especially if it's a, if it's, if it's a case that's solved, you know, lay out, let them lay out the mystery so that the reader can solve it just before the detective. If, if they want to, if they're smart enough. <clears throat> um, right now I'm writing, well, um, I've already written the story about the Lisa Pruitt case uh, that's coming out in June. And um, I, I do this in the book and I've done it in the more, I've done it in a lot of books, um, but this one in particular. Uh, so let me give you just a little background. Lisa Pruitt was 16 years old. She was the girl who was stabbed to death behind a mansion in Shaker Heights in 1990. And uh, this is the case where she, she was found 100 feet from her boyfriend's back door on the day he got out of the mental hospital where he would write her letters saying, stay away from me when I get out. I don't want to kill you. And the next day after the murder, all of his friends went to the police and said, you know, hey, um, it can't be our friend because he's a real good guy. It must be this weird kid in school who wears black and listens to Metallica. And they essentially hijacked this murder investigation and the police went with it and eventually arrested and charged this kid, Kevin Young, with the crime. Thankfully, he was acquitted. Um, but when you start looking at the case and when you start, when I started building it out as a book, 
you know, I'm trying to find the real killer there, just like the reader is probably doing when they're, they're, they're reading this thing. And so, you know, I'm presenting it with the Lisa Pruitt book. Um, we're going to get to structure here in a minute, but I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Lisa, the Lisa Pruitt book is divided into thirds. The first third is the investigation, and it talks about, um, it's kind of from the point of view of the police as they're investigating the, the case. Um, the second part is the trial, and, it, and it's this courtroom thriller and how everything was presented in court. And the third part is kind of what I call judgment, which is my reopening the case in present day. <clears throat> so um, in the investigation, I'm giving you what the police got. <clears throat> and what they came to discover is, one, they knew whoever killed Lisa Pruitt had to know she was sneaking out of the house to visit her boyfriend that night because she was murdered around midnight. And she had made this plan with her boyfriend to sneak out of her house and he was she was going to meet up with him in, in his backyard. And, you know, they hadn't seen each other in like two months. They were going to have sex. And um, so uh, it had to be somebody that knew she was coming over to this house because that's where she was murdered. So the police started asking around, like, who knew that she was going to be there? And, of course, the boyfriend knew. And he told just a limited number of people, a couple friends. Um, and they all had alibis, so it couldn't have been them. One of his friends, though, was this guy named Tex Workman. And Tex uh, went to Arabica Coffee House in Shaker, Heights, Shaker Square that night. And that's where he bumped into Kevin Young, unfortunately. Kevin Young was that kid who wore black and listened to Metallica. And this is why the police considered him a likely suspect when, the, when all the kids came and said it must be him. Because um, when Tex saw Kevin at Arabica, he told Kevin that Lisa was sneaking out. And Kevin's like, oh, yeah, that, that, that figures. You know, that's, you know, what would you expect? And so they knew, the police knew Kevin had that info too. Now, in the police report, they get that information from the uh, barista at the coffee shop. And he said, yeah, yeah, uh, the only people here were Kevin and Tex, and they were talking about Lisa. Uh, the only other person was this um, was David Brannigan, this other kid who was waiting for his girlfriend. And uh, so the police were like, oh, it's got to be Kevin. Um, and uh, and went from there. So you get this little you get this little extra piece of information, this name, David Brannigan. And then it goes away. And the police forget about this guy. They forget that there was one other guy in the coffee shop that could have overheard that information. And I forgot about him. All the lawyers forgot about him until COVID happened. And I start going back through the records and I'm like, wait a second. If they're tracing everything back to this coffee shop, there's one other person here that could have overheard that conversation. And so the reader's tracking this all the time too. They have David's name and they could have figured that this out before I did. I went into David's background and uh, found out that um, he is actually the only witness in a double homicide that occurred five doors north of where Lisa Pruitt was found in 1990. He's also, um, he also went to police the day after Lisa's murder and said, hey, I saw this 
I, I was at a bus stop and I ran into this black guy and he said that uh, he was asking questions about Lisa Pruitt. I wonder if he might have murdered Lisa. So he was kind of setting up other suspects. So David Brannigan becomes the one common denominator in three murders. And suddenly I'm very interested in this guy. And I track him down and find out he was, you know, I find an address in Twinsburg and I call up the number and I'm like, wow, if he answers the phone, what am I going to, what am I going to say? Did you murder Lisa Pruitt? You know, or did you murder the Porters, you know, five years before that? A woman answers the phone and um, identifies herself as, as, uh, as his common law wife. They, sh they had a kid together, but they never got married and said that David had died a couple of years ago. He died in 2017. And I said, well, can I come talk to you? Because I have some questions. And she, she said, sure. She so I went over, she invited me into her house. And I figured as soon as I asked her the biggest question, which is, do you think David Brannigan might've killed Lisa Pruitt? I figured she'd kick me out of her apartment, but she didn't. And what she said was, she stopped and she said, do I think David killed Lisa? She said, let me tell you this. She said, when he, when David was in preschool, he told, he, he told me the story about when he was in preschool. When he was in preschool, um, another boy pushed him down on the playground and he didn't react. He didn't hit this kid. He didn't do anything about it until lunchtime. Mind you, he's four years old, preschool. At lunchtime, he sat next to this boy. And when the boy wasn't looking, he poured Comet cleaner in his sandwich. She said, do I think David Brannigan killed Lisa Pruitt? She said, I wouldn't doubt it. I, he's certainly capable of it. And I've thought the same thing for years. So um, that's how I think I found, you know, the, 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 the real killer there. So if, and, and you, and I've written it in such a way where the reader should hopefully get to that information a page or two before I did. Um, and it, it will allow them to feel that, that triumph, like they're actually doing something. Um, so let's talk about, so that's, that's writing. Let's talk about structure a little bit. Um, every book is going to have a different and unique structure. And when, when I talk about structure, I mean, how are you arranging the chapters? Little things like, are you numbering the chapters? Are you giving them a title? Um, you know, how do you divide your book into different parts? Like I did with Lisa, where you have investigation, trial, judgment. Um, the more you can organize it, I think the, the better your, the more relaxed your, your reader feels because they can understand that structure and, and, and anticipate what's coming. Um, when I look at, when I write these true crime books, what I really like are short chapters that present some new information, answer some questions, but also raise some new questions and end in some sort of small little cliffhanger. Doesn't have to be big, just something that raises a, a question or, or, or causes a moment of, of surprise that would lead them to have to read the next page. And that structure is this, the same structure as any novel written by Dan Brown. And that's one of the reasons The Da Vinci Code, I, I believe, uh, became as popular as it, as it did because it was essentially a, a mystery novel on crack because you once you once you got a little taste once you started reading it you could not put it down
because of those short chapters ending in cliffhangers, you're like, well, I'll just read a little bit more. And then it would present a new question. You're like, okay, let me just get the answer. And then it just went on and on and on for the rest of it. So um, for every book I write, and I think I mentioned this before, I always have two books sitting on the desk as I'm writing. One of those books is for language and, and tone. And one of those books is for structure. And, um, you know, so I was thinking about the Da Vinci Code when I was writing some of these books. Now, what's interesting is, you know, the structure that you choose doesn't necessarily have to come from other nonfiction. Um, if you if you can, the story some in some way dictates the structure that it wants. And once you once you think through and figure out the structure that you want, if you feel the story fit into that, then you know you've got the right thing. Um, for instance, with the the Amy Mahalovic book, um, of all things, it's the same structure as the story It by Stephen King. Um, it's divided into three equal parts, and each part is separated by an interlude that gives you information that takes you away from the narrative, but is something that that helps the story along in some way. Um, uh, the true crime addict. Um, you know, I remember the the editor came back. Here's the table of contents, um, or the the copy editor came back. And uh, if you can see it, it's it's um, you know, just they're short chapters, and each chapter is numbered, but it also has a title. So the first chapters, you know, one, the girl with the dragon tattoo, two, paramour, three, full disclosure. And the copy editor's like, I can't find any other book that does that. And uh, I realized that um, the structure I was copying, the, only, the, the other book that does that, that I'd read, it, it's the Harry Potter books. And, um, but what it does that's interesting, the Dark Tower books always also do that. So something about fantasy. Um, and, uh, but what it does is the, the reader will skim this. And they'll get kind of a vague idea of where the whole book is going. Um, and I keep the, the, the chapters kind of vague, but you get a sense of, oh, well, here's some, you know, based on the title over here, I know something dramatic is happening. Oh, what's this, you know, the Londonderry ping? What in the world does that mean? And it's part of what drives them to read more is to figure out what in the world you're trying to say with the titles. So most people don't think the titles have that much impact, but but they do. Right now, I'm I have a um, I I got very lucky after many years. I signed a uh, signed a contract a couple months ago, where I've got this new book coming out in June, and the same publisher wants two more books. And this is the first book of a two book contract, and it's about um, my summer as a Boy Scout camp counselor, um, and in 1995, and um, it, one of uh, one of the young men um, that was counselors with us ended up dead. Um, so in in some ways, it's kind of like an origin story and how I got interested in in this sort of investigation. Um, and it's also about the bigger picture of the Boy Scouts and how they are going through something similar to the Catholic Church um, and the reckoning with sexual abuse and everything and all the fallout from that. 
So it's kind of a heavy thing, but let me show you how this is coming together. Um, I My deadline, they've given me till September to turn in a draft of this thing. Um, and I'm about, you know, you'll see about 7,500 words, which isn't much. I'm just at the beginning. But I figured out the structure after a while and it's different. Um, and here's what I'm doing. Each chapter, um, it goes back and forth between now and then. So I'm telling two narratives here. I'm telling about what's happening relatively now, what's happening in my life because of the repercussions of things that happened from the summer in 1995, and then, um, you know, so it's it's quite personal there. Um, it, so you're getting a narrative of what happened in 1995 against what's happening now, um, and it's 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 working. It took me it took me a while to 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 get into it and going, but there's so it's it's now and then. Um, and I realized I had stolen that structure from another. Um, Stephen King's story. Um, if anybody's read read uh, Lisey's story that came out about 10 years ago, it's essentially the same structure. Um, and it be, because it works well for somebody in the present day ruminating about events that happened in the past um, and showing how um, things echo through time. Uh, but here's another thing that I do that I think might be helpful for you as you're, as you're going along. So you'll see now I, um, I'm trying to organize these chapters. Remember I said that there'll be times where you can't get anything creative, that you're just putting information on the page. You're transcribing police reports or something like that. Well, you're also, I also leave myself notes at the very end. So I know at some point, um, I want to get into the, I want to get into the Boy Scouts bankruptcy case. Um, I want to uh, talk about this first aid class that I had with this um, counselor called Conley um, when I first met Klingler, the guy that ended up dead. Um, this event where my first night at uh, first week at camp, I was in charge of first aid. And uh, a kid in one of the troops put wood on a campfire that was covered in poison ivy. And the, the kids breathed the smoke and got the poison ivy in their lungs and, and started having severe attacks. So I want to talk about that story. So as you're going along, you're also leaving yourself notes to um, it, almost like breadcrumbs to show you what comes next or where you want to go. And then you can just grab that and plug it in. Um, yeah. So um, don't be afraid to like, it doesn't have to look perfect. Just, just put junk on a page and slowly it's going to come together. Let me jump into the main screen again. Okay, there we go. Um, can we do speaker? No. Gallery. Let's just keep it like that. 
Okay, I saw there was a new message down here. Let me let me see how we're doing in the the chats. Just an oh my god. Okay, do I use book writing software? Just uh, I, what I use is Microsoft Word because that's that's what the editors want to read in the end. Uh, you can use anything you want as long as you're then um, putting it into Microsoft Word in that twelve point Times New Roman double spaced format at the end. However you want to work at the beginning, fine because it's all ugly. It's all just getting the information out there. But the you know I I I just I got in the habit of working with Microsoft Word. Um, oh, like I said, a lot of creative choices you can make, but there are a couple unbroken, unbreakable rules for true crime writing. Um, the first one is you got to start off with the body, even if you're writing an article. And I remember um, one of my first editors at, at Scene telling me this, and I'm like, I didn't really believe him, and I tried different structures. It never works, um, and it, it's not going to keep your readers' attention because they want to. They want to know what they're reading and why they're reading it. So, um, you're starting out with the body, unless you're writing about like uh, a heist. You're starting out with the heist, whatever the crime is, a disappearance with the Maura Murray case. Um, you you start out with the crime, um, a jogger finding the body and thinking it's a mannequin, um, Maura Murray going missing on the side of a road. Um, you know, Amy Mihalovic getting abducted, you start off there and it can just be a very short scene, but it sets everything else up. The second chapter is where you set up the stakes uh, for both you and the reader. So what are the stakes? Are you setting out to solve this case? Um, do we know it's already solved and, and we're, we're, we're reading towards some sort of conclusion? We know the conclusion is going to be there. Um, you know, what are, what is this book going to be doing? That should be clear by the end of chapter two. And, uh, you're shooting for this first draft should end up being around 90,000 words. <clears throat> so, um, and with editors and agents, and we're going to get into that next week, how to deal with agents and editors. Um, they all, they talk in word count, not page count. So you're shooting for 90,000 words. And here's why, because now we're going to talk about editing for a little bit. And the first thing you're doing in editing is you're taking that first draft manuscript. That's a, let's say 90,000 words, and you're going to cut 10% out of it which is 9,000 words. You're going to get it down to 81,000 words. Um, and that's the Stephen King rule. You know, he's very influential in what I do. Um, but I highly recommend reading Stephen King's On Writing if you haven't already. Uh, that's the rule he sets out there and it works very, very well. Um, and if you don't do it, it's going to end up happening later anyways. So um, you're going to, you're going to, that second draft, is going to be minus 10% of what your first draft is. And, you know, it's it, it sounds like a lot, but it's not really because what you're going to go through, you're going to realize I have a habit of doing this where I start a paragraph off and I'm doing kind of some throat clearing before I get to the point of what I want to try to say. You're getting rid of all that fluff and you're just getting to the point of um, of what you're saying in every paragraph, every chapter. You're, you're just getting rid of all the extra stuff that doesn't need to be there. 
And that, that alone will get you probably to your 10% for that first draft. Um, <laughs> I feel like I'm getting the requirements for my senior thesis again, <laughs> but it's pretty much, um, you know, it's, uh, it's probably a little, little more work than a, than a thesis. Um, so uh, you've got your first draft and you've done your, you know, and what I would suggest is you finish that first draft, you set it aside, do something else for two weeks, come back to it, do your editing, get it down by 10%. Now you have kind of a clean draft. You're not going to send it to your agent yet. You're going to send it to three readers. Two of those readers should be avid readers, people that read, you know, three or four books a month. And we all have friends like this. If not, go to your library and uh, um, get into some sort of readers group, find these people because they will naturally, even if they're not great editors, they will instinctively, uh, inst instinctively know what works and what doesn't because they've read so damn much. Um, and, and if it's not working, it's going to click in their head and they're, they're not going to feel right. So um, two, two readers that are avid readers and the third reader should be not a friend, but an acquaintance, somebody that you know, but somebody that's not close enough to you that they don't care, you know, that, that they don't want to hurt your feelings. You want somebody that is distant enough to give you real criticism, um, preferably if you have any acquaintances that are English teachers or English professors, somebody in the, um, you know, somebody that teaches, that, that edits, a journalist, somebody like that. Um, and the, the meaner, the better, you know, if you can find the cranky, cranky old copy editor, they're the best. And you give them all the book, you give them, give it to them the same day. And you'll get the, you'll get their notes back around the same time, you know, give them, you know, four or five weeks, six weeks and collect their, their notes. And what I do is I, I print them out. I go to Staples, even to this day. I print them out. I put them in binders. I got a bunch of old binders here and I drive it out to them and get, give it to them. And inside the binder is a couple things. It's kind of a note on what I want the book to accomplish. Um, a, re a couple red pens and, um, and, and some money, you know, you should pay these people, not a whole lot, you know, um, a hundred bucks goes a long way. Um, you know, or, you know, take them out, you know, give them a, a, you know, at the very least, give them a gift certificate to a restaurant or, um, or a cactus or something, but give them something. And, uh, and then you get, you collect the manuscripts back and you have all their notes on, on red notes. And then you, you read through each of them and then you compare them because, if each of these three people gives you the same note and says, uh, this is not working, if all three of them agree that this is not working, no matter how much you like that, it needs to go. Um, because every other reader that's going to read your book is going to get tripped up on that same thing. Uh, even if they're wrong, <laughs> you know, even if, even if you know this is better in a literary sense, um, it's not worth the trouble. So make that change. Um, if they disagree, if two of them say one thing, the other says, no, this is working, then it's up to you. You make the decision uh, on what, what you ultimately want to do. 
but really listen to that criticism and 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 take it to heart and it doesn't mean you're a bad writer um, because the criticism is helping you develop a better book which is a great thing then we get to the third edit and that third edit happens with your agent and agents over the last 20 years 20 or 30 years have essentially taken the place of um, the agents have kind of taken the place that editors used to have. Editors used to edit. Now it's mostly the agents that, that do the, the early editing. Um, and your agent's going to come back with a bunch of notes. Now, um, you need to be passionate for your writing at that point. And um, agents don't necessarily come from a literary background. They can come from a business background. They can have a feeling for what makes a good book or what's a sellable book. Um, and so their notes might not necessarily be helping the book itself. So take their criticism, but don't be afraid to stand up for your writing at that point. Um, so take, take their notes, but be clear with what you want with your agent. Uh, now the final edit, you're going to turn in a final manuscript to an editor. Now the editor is going to read it and they're going to come back with notes. And with the editor, it's important. It's a very opposite from editing from an agent standpoint, because when the editor comes back with notes, you should be amenable to those notes. Um, you're going to, I would recommend agree with 90 percent of their edits just on the face of things you got to make 90 you got to you got to say okay you know 90 percent of the time they're right even if you think they're wrong um you know the the remaining 10 percent you can think about but ultimately i would strongly suggest you do what they ask you to do if you want to do this for a living and, and make money at it because they're the ones that control uh, everything. And, you know, they, they also are coming at it from a literary background. The editors have that background. They know what good writing is and you should trust them. You know, part of that relationship is about trust. And even if you don't understand completely why they want you to make that change, you should give them the trust that they know what they're doing. Uh, Oh, uh, which reminds me, um, the so um, the second novel I wrote was this thing called The Great Forgetting. And um, I, you know, my first novel when it was published in 2012 got me a deal with a publisher where they said, they basically said, whatever your second book is, we want it. So it was like giving all my life I've wanted to be a writer. And so it was like, giving your kid the car keys and saying go have fun and so i did and what i what i did was i turned in remember i said you're shooting for ninety thousand words for your first manuscript what i gave them was a hundred and ninety thousand words it was the size of stephen king's the stand and uh i turned it into the editor and she's like nobody's gonna read this we don't publish things this big. Um, it would require a special printer to do something like this. You gotta, you gotta edit this thing. So I spent the next year um, 
and this is where I say you got to trust your editor, no matter how hard it hurts, because I cut 500 pages out of that book in order to get it published. Um, and it, it was excruciating. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I wanted to do this for a living. I wanted to make money and this was the only way to do it. So, you know, maybe there's, you know, and, and that's why, you know, Stephen King with the, with the stand, when they published it, it was um, much shorter and he wasn't, you know, famous. And then he became famous and he's like, well, now I want to publish the whole thing. So, you know, maybe, maybe tell yourself that, that, you know, I'll keep the complete version on a shelf somewhere until I get uber famous. And then, then I'll try to publish it. Then people might read it, but um, yeah, that, that hurt. So, um, and editing's, editing's going to be difficult like that. Uh, yeah. And, and finally you're, you're done with the final edit. Um, you know, let it be, you know, uh, you know, celebrate turning in that final draft, uh, smoke a stogie, you know, take yourself on a little, um, spa trip or, um, you know, get your favorite candy bar, you know, or, or some champagne, but do something to celebrate it. Cause that's a big deal. And, uh, um, yeah. So, um, that is, you know, my thoughts on writing and editing true crime. And there's the bell class is over for this week. Thank you for dropping by. There are five episodes of on writing true crime. If you have any questions about anything covered in the class, feel free to reach me during office hours at jamesrenner.com.